0: There's a lot of other things we might learn to accept about our child, but being sick is not one of them. And we have to gather all of our armor to say, take me seriously. Take
1: me seriously. Welcome to Sweat the Technique. I'm going to reintroduce myself. My name is Stacey Shells harvey I'm the CEO of Regeneration Schools. And my organization manages a group of charter schools in Chicago and Cincinnati, which is my hometown. This is a podcast on how to get better, faster. We are a group of educators that have had success in developing teachers, and now we're really trying to just apply all of those techniques to regular and real life. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe, give us a good rating, and keep listening because we appreciate you. Now, I want to jump right in because today's episode is about a journey that many parents and educators find themselves on as it relates to healthcare for children. And it's a journey that can look like pediatrician visits or the diagnosis of childhood cancer, which is not what any parent is expecting. And it's also not what an educator realizes could be the reality for the children that they're working with. And it's a journey that needs and deserves attention, which is why I am really excited to talk with Serene Nor Ali today. Hi, how are
0: you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be here with you.
1: I am beyond excited to be here with you today, Serene. And before I introduce all of your accolades and who you are, I want to tell everyone how I met you, right? Because because we were together at a conference, um, a Pahara conference that was for women of color who are CEOs. And it was a really cathartic experience, I think, for a lot of us because we got a chance to rest, relax, and to be vulnerable. And in that moment, what stood out to me about you is that everything about you, I can't tell you how it checks the box in so many ways for me, for a principle that I hold very dear to my heart, which is that you work like it depends on you and you pray like it depends on God. And you were a woman of faith. You were a woman who found yourself in a situation that you had to take as your website so eloquently states, you had to take frustration to hope. And there's faith involved in that. And you saw a gap and you filled it. And so to talk a little bit more about Serene, she's a giant to me as, in terms of women. And she is an award-winning technology entrepreneur with a background in social justice. She was a U.S. diplomat that helped install companies and institutions throughout the Middle East. She's the founder of EdTech Woman, which was recognized by South by Southwest as their first ever change maker award in 2015. And she was also recognized by our former President Obama for managing the team that deployed the US's first set of digital diplomacy products in an area of the Middle East. And so this is just like a small amount of the things that you've accomplished. But what we're going to talk about today is something really exciting called Sleuth. And that's your website that just launched this week. Yep. <laughs> I just yeah. joined. Um, my screen name is Houston. That's my son's name. Um, I've already been <laughs> investigating. I was like ear infections, <laughs> and so I was like on there like, is my son going to get tubes? Like you know. And so I already appreciate it. But I want to throw it over to you. And if I miss anything in your bio that you want to highlight, feel free to fill us in. But take us on your journey. Tell us about Sleuth. Tell us how you got here and
0: everything that you're doing. Well, I'm very humbled to be introduced by you because you are also someone I hold in high such high esteem. And uh, there's something really special about being able to speak to an education leader because that's where I feel a little bit more at home, right, with people working in the reform space. And I think that Sleuth came from this deep need to make it better. There was like so much pain that I went through. And it sounds silly to say that a lack of information is painful, but it is. You know, when you're going on WebMD, you get these two extremes of information. And I never really considered information to be, I just considered to be lightweight, like this thing that helps you. But when your kid is not falling into the norm. When you're a kid, when you go to your pediatrician and your pediatrician is like, well, they're still fine in this way and this way, but you know in your heart that you probably need to be doing something else. Actually, the one thing you need is information. And that's the genesis of Sleuth. And I'm so touched that you opened up the way you did because I don't talk about my spirituality that much publicly because I started my career in DC. Mm. and. uh, I was like a professional Muslim. So some of the stuff that you talked about I was like, and, I, and it took away very much from like, people just made assumptions because I'm Muslim and people made assumptions of all Muslims. And I, when I moved to New York, I was like, I'm tired of people putting on me what they think that I should look like because they think Muslims look this certain way. And so I hid it. Oh. But when you say that, it allows me to say that the entire inception of the startup was out of my control. It was not something I intended to do because I had worked for startups and I didn't like the culture of the startups system. That's why I said I'm so much more comfortable talking to reformers, not because things are easier, but because it's a language that I can understand. But I ended up meeting this co-founder who, when I brought the problem to him, was a data scientist and was like, this is hard and it's solvable and we can do something really big together and if you had asked me four years before, what do you think you're gonna be doing? I'd be like, I don't know, I'll be working in ed tech somewhere. I wouldn't have guessed this.
1: If you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit more about your journey, a little bit more about those pediatrician visits? Because I think it's something that as a mom, it's like you go into the doctor's office and like for instance, like it was really hard for me to literally stop and say, like, I don't care what You say, my son is not developing in speech the way that I know he can. Like, I know he has all these words and I can't understand him. Right. And so I had to demand to the educators, to my doctor, to get a recommendation for my son to have speech because they're like, it's good enough. And I'm like, it's not. And so what brought you to that space in terms of your personal journey?
0: Yeah. So I have two daughters, uh, nine and six. And my younger daughter started missing her milestones. And it was during a really hard time. My dad was sick and he ended up passing away when she was only six months old. So the very first several months of her life was very kind of chaotic. And and, and, and I'm making a mark on that story about my dad because I would love to come back later to caregiving and what that looks like. But, you know, when I finally got back to New York and sort of settled after this big thing, I was like... You know, I've been asking in all my well visits, like, why this is going on and why this is going on. And I don't really understand why I keep getting delayed. And so we had called early intervention because I had known from my first daughter that that's a resource I could use. And so while my pediatrician was saying, no, I'm not going to give you the referral... I had called early intervention that actually ended up doing the diagnostic exams that said, actually, you do qualify for PT, OT, and speech, all three. And at that point, I remember being like, I'm just going to push for it. And so I did push for the referral. And then that actually kickstarted everything. And it was weird. Like, you know how as a parent, your identity shifts when you become a parent. Oh, baby. Yes. <laughs> My identity shifted when I became a parent. And then all of a sudden... I had to quit my job because I wasn't getting the information I needed about what to do for her. And I just entered the term special needs. And that was new for me. And that's hard because it, it takes you away from what you feel is like normal, even though we should just have a more inclusive definition. And then I ended up going into the medical needs world because several years later in 2021, after what was supposed to be a routine scan, we found out what the source of her delays were. And it was really, really serious. And she had a major brain surgery and we were supposed to be in the hospital for five days and she was there for three months. And so I feel like I've seen the spectrum And in every moment of seeing that spectrum, it was like, how do we serve this?
1: And something that you said, so much of what you just said resonates with me, but especially when you talk about how your identity changes, and yeah. that leads me to even the name sleuth. Because when you said your identity yeah. changes, and I was like, oh girl, what I was saying to myself was like, Mama Bear yes. is on the game. Yes. Like somebody at my school, wonderful, wonderful director of ops named Jesse, he just had a son. And I said, I said to him, I said, Oh my God, were you looking at your son? Because he had his son like maybe two weeks ago. And he's like kind of like back, but going back out on paternity. So he's like gonna take work a week and then do, you know. And I yeah. said, I said to him, I said, did you look at your son and say, "I'll kill somebody over him? He was like, oh, my God, that's everybody. And I'm like, oh, yes. <laughs>
0: I love that. I love that. And it's exactly what sleuth is. It's exactly the mama bear and the papa bear protecting their cub. And in a system and in systems, I mean, we live in broken systems in the U.S. And yes. so that's mm-hmm. who you have to be. You don't have a choice when you're not getting answers and you're not getting it in time. No matter how great the doctors are, they still live in the broken system.
1: Amen. They still do. And I mean, as women of color, right? Right. There's like a whole nother layer to that. And the part that is heartbreaking, I think, is that I think that so many of us look at health and healthcare as a system that's supposed to be altruistic, as a system where, like, oh, the systems are broken over here, but you know, you see the TV shows and everybody is like fighting and everybody's on the same page. And then when you start navigating, all of a sudden you start seeing the classism. All of a sudden you start seeing people making assumptions about your concern, the complacency, the belittling of your concerns. And so you start sleuthing, right? And you start Googling and you start looking for answers. So, With that being said, can you tell us a little bit more about what you've created? Yeah.
0: So we center the expertise of the caregiver, and that's the parent. And we crowdsource information from caregivers about their children's health journeys, So we have 50,000 right now, children's health journeys. Wow! And when you crowdsource information on symptoms, conditions, timelines of that symptom, did it get better, did it get worse, treatments they used, that information is really accurate. It's actually just a phenomenal kind of way that this works, that when you get enough people who have gone through something, you actually get information that is reliable. And we were talking to someone yesterday who was user testing it. And what I loved about what she said was she She's like, I know I can trust this. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what we're going because parents trust each other. Parents
1: trust each other. I want to go into that a little bit deeper. And the reason why is because like being data driven is something that educators and ed reformers are really familiar with. But I'm not sure if every parent really understands what that means, especially when they enter spaces and you're surfing the Internet and you're looking for something and you use a keyword, which is reliable. Right, So we even try to teach our kids at the middle school level that when you're surfing the internet, how do you know that what you're finding is a reliable source? Because anybody can be an author on the internet. And so one of the things that struck me that I like about Sleuth is what you do to make sure that your data is reliable. Can you share a little bit more about just how you comb the sand to make sure that what people are
0: getting? So we gather information directly from our app and from surveys that we do. And when we think about surveys, these are like the most research-backed intensive surveys that you can imagine because my co-founder, Alex, is a researcher. And one of the things that we do to make the data higher quality and to have very little room for error is we have high moderation. So we're looking at everything. And we ask questions that are hard to lie about, basically. <laughs> That's important. <laughs> you ask, right. You, we ask very structured questions. And so we've, we know and then we've proven that people stay within the boundaries of that question. How old was your child when you saw that symptom? Did it get better? Did it not get better? How much did it get better? And so that advantage of structured data means that the output is really high quality. And something that we're really proud of is that our data matches The demographics of the U.S. almost completely in terms of race and gender of children, it's pretty much spot on. I could literally give you the demographics of Hispanic, Asian, Black. And the fidelity is insane. And that matters, too, right? When you're looking at quality of information, like you don't want to be sourcing from only one person. And then if someone comes in and is like, hey, listen, you should use Windex instead of Mm -hmm. getting a vaccine or something like that. We have those mechanisms that actually show that I'm like, this is an errant entry, like this cannot cannot be shown. And that's really the advantage of being so heavy on the back end with technology. And so I can say as an African-American woman, that speaks to
1: me because when I went on your website, I just wanted to know who are the contributors and so who are your parent contributors? And you actually, on your website, you list the literal percentage of not only just the racial background, the gender background, but the income background. And what I appreciated is that you have almost as many low-income contributors as you have high income. And if there's one thing that we know is that if you... Do not have a level of resources. You were blessed in a way to be able to quit your job, you know, to take care of your child. But if you are looking for answers and you don't have resources, now there is a website that has information from people who do have resources. And that's a way of leveling the playing field. And when I was looking, for instance, because my son has been suffering from ear infections and he's had four ear infections since November. I like how you talk about the data and categories because as soon as I typed in ear tubes, boom, ear infections, and then all the categories from the symptoms to the treatments. And I was able to go into the symptoms that I see from him. And you can tell that there are so many contributors because it had things like coughing, wheezing, wheezing, things that you may not even realize come with an ear infection, right? And then I was able to see how many people had contributed to each specific symptom. And then it even had the age range. And that was very useful for me as a parent because it showed me the percentage of kids who are experiencing an ear infection that my child is three. So I believe it was like zero to three or three to like five. And then I see that there's actually a large amount of incidences of people around that time period. And my son, they also are not sure if he has childhood asthma or not. And so then I went and immediately albuterol Buter Hall with an inhaler. They had all the different treatments. And now there's even an area where, especially on the app. So I would also recommend people get on the app if they can, where there you can start to see the discussion. And I find that when someone goes through an experience like the one that you just described with your own daughter, it's not what you ever expect. Everybody's child hasn't had tubes, even though there's a lot. And what you went through is something where you needed real answers. You needed real answers and you needed a resource guide because sometimes you have to go in saying, okay, so what about this treatment? Or what about that treatment? You know, because the more resources you have, you'll find out that there are treatments that they may not even suggest to you if you don't know to ask. And that to me is why having such a representative population. Of all demographics. It matters. And so one of the things that I know we wanted to talk about as well are the child-centered approaches. I would love to know what that means to you How can parents and educators be more child-centered? How can pediatricians, hospitals, like what is a child-centered? I know what a child-centered approach is within like a classroom, but not necessarily within the context of healthcare with a child with needs or even as a parent.
0: I would love our entire culture and society to be more child-centered. In the healthcare space, it requires a lot of deep listening, both by the provider and the parent. And the provider and the parent have a really unique, sometimes tense relationship. But I think both should be working in service of the child while understanding that the child doesn't have the medical expertise that the doctor does so i'll give you an example my daughter gets a lot of therapy i have learned to be more attuned to the things that are more important to her or that might bother her right so when she goes to a new therapist she gets scared about meeting the therapist Right. So like that requires a lot of me not saying, no, you just have to go. But like, okay, let me see if I can just give a heads up to the therapist. Let me see if I can tell child life to be in the room. It also means that I ask my pediatrician, like, hey, can I just stop this therapy? And then she was like, actually, no, you need to keep going. And then it's like going back to the child and saying, like, let's actually let me hear you out on this. But you also have to do it. Right. It's like centering the child's emotions and having that child know that you are the sturdy leader of that unit. I think that the medical system is hard on kids as they get older and they transition when they transition from kids that are yours, my age to a teen. I think we need to start giving them more of the reins of their own bodies. And that's where the listening comes into. And I don't have personal experience with that, but I think it has to be done in a process. Like I interviewed this pediatrician, Dr. Fraden, who has a book coming out on some of these things. And it's like, she was telling me these things about how children have their own autonomy and how it gets passed on that I never knew about. And I've been doing this for so many years. I was like, oh, they just go to college and they take over their medical record. No, not at all. I actually... Just want to ask you something, which is what is a child centered society look like to you? Like, what do you want for children? A
1: child centered society for me means that we are putting children's best interests, regardless of gender, regardless of orientation, regardless of race. First, it means that we're listening to kids and we're listening to parents, but we're also creating opportunities for children to see more and know more. Because one of the things that is a struggle for me in my environment is that I have children who have never left their block. So one of the things that I did in my original Pahara cohort was I was interviewing Parents and I was interviewing kids to see what they wanted in schools. But I had kids who had never been exposed to what the possibilities are. Yeah. Same thing with parents, right? Yeah. And so I think sometimes people get confused because they're like, oh, child centered. And the kid is like, I want to play basketball. Well, he doesn't know about lacrosse. He doesn't know about this and that. And so child centered for me is expanding children's horizons. So that way they can make informed decisions for themselves. Such an important point.
0: So important.
1: Yeah. Because equity is my kid goes to school at one of the top schools in the city, he's only three, so he's not in preschool, but he's already getting exposed to more than maybe a kid at a school down the street. And so on me having him and me having him in that school, I immediately have just started trying to figure out now every field trip must be somewhere different. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't even want people to come into the school so much to do things. I want to send our kids Out into the world, yeah. Right when I was a principal, I remember taking my kids to a senior PGA tour on a golf course. I met a guy who owned a ski resort and taking them downhill skiing for a day because it was I was Rochester, Upstate New York, right? So it's like easy to do that. (laughs) No, but that group of kids, if you ask them a question now, it was different than when it was when they came in the door, and so it's making sure that their voices are reflection of enough exposure they gotta know the options something else that when i think about teenage girls right now and the reported feeling of persistent sadness and so when i'm thinking when i'm hearing you talk about the child center approach it it just seems like especially post-pandemic in schools right now in our schools kids are fighting more than ever before there's more depression than ever before. And there's not enough social workers to address it. And so what I feel like I hear you saying is that the approach has to deal with not only listening, but observing. What recommendations would you have for doctors in terms of that? Because I I see that already when we go in. I'm like, no, I didn't say he was wheezing. I said he was coughing and there's a difference. (laughs) I mean, I think
0: handing your doctor a list and timeline of what your child is going through when is almost irrefutable, right? It's like, how do you get listened to? I I wish it didn't have to be this way, but one way is to give them the data. This is when it happened. Take a picture of it, take a video of it. The iPhone is amazing as an advocacy tool in primary health, right, for kids because you can actually document it. And I think when it comes to teen health, it's such an interesting question. I think there's a role of the parent there also. Right? Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes we don't see what we don't want to see Mm. when it comes to mental health. That's very true. And one thing I hope that happens is we start normalizing it and saying, My child has anxiety. And I say it even though I, you know, I don't publicly state what her diagnosis is, but I will say that she has anxiety because I know so many children have anxiety. And I'm fortunate that, like, I work in something that I really am passionate about. So maybe if I see it, maybe someone will feel like it's less bad if they think their kid has anxiety, right? And so I think as parents kind of like checking in and saying, I have this nagging feeling, but maybe it's nothing, but maybe it's something.
1: Maybe it's something. And I think culturally, like when I was growing up, my, you know, my mom is from the deep South. She drank from separate water fountains, sat at the back of buses and- prided herself on like, we don't cry. We don't do this. Like I've had to explain to my mom before, God bless her, that, you know, when we have have friends or or whatnot who may be suffering from depression, I'm like, no, mom, this is is not like a wipe your eyes and get out there, girl, and go at it. It's different. And that child-centered approach piece is really important in terms of listening, like you said, to kids and normalizing it normalizing it, normalizing that anxiety. Exp- I can't even explain to you what we're seeing post-COVID in schools right now.
0: You can't imagine, Stacey. I honest, I can't imagine. I know it intellectually, but you're seeing it on the front line. Especially when you are in service of children and a community
1: that was disproportionately impacted. So if you are already potentially impoverished before COVID, what happened if your job was shut down and you worked hourly, you know? And then imagine if in the midst of this, your child is going through anxiety because they're scared, or maybe they they could have been going through anxiety before, you know, or they're sick and you don't know. And so that's why I really want to get the word out about Sleuth, because so often we are on Facebook, you know what I mean? Or And there's nothing wrong with Facebook. There are great communities, you know, of people- on Facebook who are talking about this, but what's missing is the data.
0: And knowing what to do. One of the things we found with ADHD that we were really, really happy about was that some of the highest recommendations were totally accessible to anyone. And that's really where it matters. It is so expensive sometimes, right? And that's heartbreaking. And you and I don't have control over a lot of that right? Like we can't, we can't solve for the fact that like psychologists are hundreds of dollars an hour. But in our data, what we're seeing is that practicing patience with your kid leads to better outcomes for children with ADHD. I have to tell you, like people said that three was hard and it
1: is hard. But if you don't have somewhere to go to tell you that, then you don't know. And especially if you don't have resources. And that kind of leads me back to just curious as to what are you seeing in the trends on your website from the data? Where are you seeing people are
0: really honing in
1: right now? We're
0: seeing people hone in on ADHD and anxiety, especially The thing about anxiety that's interesting is that people with kids of different ages are going there. The other place that we see people go are things like eczema. There's there's these set of conditions that 80% of parents are searching on for Google. And so we built around that. So we're actually seeing people go to those conditions. So it's like speech delay, eczema, behavior, milestones, I think what's fascinating, and I didn't expect this, we have a symptom tracker and people love the symptom tracker and I knew they would like it. I didn't think they would love it. And the reason that they love it is because they have something that they need to track for their pediatrician. And like me, they're not going to write it on a piece of paper. And it's just... What we do is we will analyze the data too. That part's coming in a little bit, but you can track any symptom behavior in the time and then you can have a log of it. And I was like a little bit more neutral on how that would hit. But what I heard when I was hearing people talk about it is that they felt like this was part of their toolkit to advocate for their child and they needed that tool.
1: I can definitely say I've needed that tool and I can't imagine what you're doing if you don't. And so what I love is that you're providing something so that you can, because sometimes you don't even realize Like when I went in to look at ear infections, I went to the symptom tracker, right? There were things that I'm like, he's going through that too. I didn't realize that this too was a symptom of ear infections and earaches. And, you know, and I started out by looking on your site for tubes, which is a treatment. But then that got me to symptoms of ear infections. And someone had to say it to me, even though I feel like I knew that. Sometimes you think you know stuff, and you're like, oh, I forgot. Ear, nose, throat, right? And so as I looked, I'm like, ah, coughing, allergies, all these things were listed, and the occurrence of just from looking at a treatment and then being able to go all the way back to symptoms, you know, what I want people to understand is you don't even have to completely know what you're looking for, right? You can type in a symptom, you can type in a treatment, you can type in, you know, different things, and it's still gonna give you information. And I do really appreciate that it's giving you information that you can take to your doctor. Because in defense of doctors, they are also depending on you to describe what you've seen so that they have an
0: entry point. Yeah. Every time I talk to a mom who's been on a journey with their child, there's always this moment that they describe where they realize they were in the driver's seat. And they say that almost verbatim. I didn't realize I was in the driver's seat. And hopefully that moment doesn't come for most parents. I don't want that to. But I think what's important to know is that your pediatrician really does look at you As the person who knows their child's symptoms, every pediatrician I've talked to prioritizes the role of the caregiver and what the caregiver knows. And I don't know that we always know that when we go to the pediatrician office because the bureaucracy of the business of medicine gets in the way. But actually, you help the doctor out by saying... At the top of your conversation, this is what I want to talk about. This is what I'm concerned. As Dr. Frayton told me, you don't have to wait till the end of the appointment because they can't help you that much then. And I think that there's just so much that we can do as parents. But I think the medical system has always made us feel like we're the passive ones. And we are still getting defeated by the medical system, but, but everybody is. Everybody involved with the medical system is getting defeated. And so the more we come in with, the more we say, no, I know this. I recorded it. I know my son. Trust your gut. You will get better answers for sure.
1: And that's really important to me for the moms and the dads and the grandmothers and the people out there who may not feel as confident because they don't have the education, As a woman of color, advocating for yourself, I mean, advocating for myself as a patient, let alone my son, people can make you feel sometimes that you don't know what you're talking about or that your voice isn't important. And I I don't think it's intentional, you know? Sometimes I think it's an unconscious bias. Some of it can be self-inflicted. Like it can be also like how you feel about yourself as an advocate. The more information that you have, the more confident that you're going to feel.
0: Sometimes I bring my husband to appointments because I wanted someone to be listened to. And the the deep irony is that I'm South Asian. I used to sleep with my daughter in the hospital and the doctors would round at like six or seven in the morning. I finally started to wear my daytime clothes at nighttime so that when they came at six in the morning after I got, I don't know, four hours of sleep, I wanted to be credible because I think this is the difference. They are seeing us at our most vulnerable absolutely the most vulnerable. The last thing any parent wants is to have their child be sick, right? Like there's a lot of other things we might learn to accept about our child, but being sick is not one of them. And they're seeing us in this moment and we have to gather all of our armor to say, take me seriously.
1: Take me seriously. The whole vulnerability piece sings to me. And when you say that you started sleeping in your day clothes... Because you want it to look credible. That touches my heart. There's this great verse that's like, I wear my chains even when I'm in the house because I started from the bottom, now I'm here, right? Like, he's like, I'm asleep in my chains, right? I do something similar. When I go to the doctor, I will not walk out the house without my wedding ring. I will not walk out the house without my David Yurman. I make sure, because I'm like, you are not going to make an assumption about me I'm gonna walk out the house looking like money so that when I talk to you, I shouldn't have to do that. Like I'm a fierce bear for my child and I don't care if I'm dirt poor. I've been with my child for the past 24 hours and I've been watching what she or he is going through and I can tell you what I've seen. And people deserve respect for just that alone. But if you and I, women with multiple degrees, right? If we have to do that, just imagine. And that's why sleuth is such an important tool because it's gonna arm you with information that's gonna allow you to be fluent in what you're seeing. And see, that fluency is the language that you need in moments of vulnerability. Like you said, my armor. Like for me, sleuth is another piece of armor so that when you go in, You're like, I've looked at the symptoms and I see that based off of this, 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 and that, I didn't realize when he was coughing, it could be this, but it is. And this is how he was coughing or this is what he's seeing. And the fever was this great, right? It wasn't 99. It wasn't 101. It was 103, you know, and I'm not comfortable with this and that medicine isn't working. I see now that there's some other types of treatments. There's more than one type of antibiotic, Right. And so I had to push because the antibiotic that they were giving, it wasn't working, you know? And then sometimes notes aren't always correct. They're like, oh, we see that your child had this antibiotic last time. Oh my
0: God, Stacy! I'm so glad you brought that up. I cannot even begin to tell you. I'm like waiting for an investigative reporter to go in <laughs> and do a report about how medical notes in actuality are not at all the same. The diagnoses I've seen on my daughter's chart have been wrong. And there are two occasions where I was like, you know, if I didn't correct that, like her treatment would have been different. So what you're saying is so spot on. And when I think about in pediatric health, you know, there are children's hospitals. So for example, I tell my friends who become parents, when your child is sick, go to a pediatric ER, do not go to an adult ER. And there's a difference. I didn't know that difference. Different medical equipment. There are specialists that are pediatric specialists versus adult specialists. That's that's important, right? It is imperative. And there's children's hospitals are not located in every place in the country, right? So last year I talked to a woman whose daughter got COVID and she actually got this rare condition called MISC. c Do you know? You know mm-hmm. I am familiar. I was worried about it, yes. It's scary. You know what they diagnosed her daughter with at the hospital she was in? Cancer. <sighs> And this was a moment where her advocacy kicked in because she can name it the moment where it happened. And then she went to a different hospital. Right. So like the information and we're not there yet, candidly. Right. Like we're new. We just we just went to market. We're testing. But whether it's through sleuth, through other ways, having information about what your child is going through really matters And it matters because late diagnoses, kids are diagnosed late for just a lot of things, not in these acute situations, which I hope people don't go through. But speech delays are diagnosed late. Walking can be diagnosed late. And for a lot of these, the earlier you're diagnosed, the better the treatment, like epilepsy.
1: Yes. Autism.
0: Right. So if you encounter bias at your first moment with the pediatrician on this issue it's the bias that you carry it's like the mild stuff you and I wearing those different clothes we'll do it we'll do anything right we will literally do anything we'll accept it but what we're really trying to do is make sure our child gets the right care at the right time that's why we're doing that and
1: can you even give us a little bit more on what care because people don't always know right what does care giver bias look like
0: I think, I think caregiver bias comes from a couple different factors. I think it comes from not being listened to in the system. And I think culturally and societally, it's from not being seen. I think people who are caregivers, whether it's their child who has an illness or their elder in their family has an illness, we're not seeing it, actually. We're not really understanding how deeply difficult it is. I think females get it worse than men. I think there's this expectation that well, you're a woman, you're supposed to be caregiving. Like, I'm sorry if you had to leave your job and do this, but really that's your job. And that invisibility will eat people alive because they are burnt out. And there's this quote that keeps sticking in my mind by Dr. Pooja Lakshman, who wrote a book on self-care. And she's like, it's not burnout, it's betrayal. And that betrayal is a systemic betrayal. And whether that system is an education system, or a medical system, or even honestly, like, I'm playing this idea of like, even media, the way that media talks about parenting, it drives me crazy. Yes, yes. 140,000 kids lost their parents to COVID. Where is that story? It's not there. It is
1: not there. And there's not enough information out there. And as an educator, I remember the first time as a teacher years ago, a principal, and I'm not going to fault her because she didn't know what to do, right? But she came in and she told me, and this is years ago, that a student had a fatal sickness. And that was it. And I didn't know, I didn't know what I was supposed to do with the information. I could see it on the child's face, not meaning like anything physical, but just the wear and tear, the emotions with it. And as educators, we are constantly, and we may not even be, realize it, but. Children who are going through, it could be something as simple as pink eye, or it could be, you know, childhood cancer. There's 17,000 cases a year. 47 kids are diagnosed a day. They could be going through things that we don't know about. And so that's why I like how you bring up the child-centered, right, approach, you know. And then working with a parent that's a caregiver, and like you said, it is a, a, a system failure, It's not a burnout. It's a system burnout. It's a system failure. And it just, and then you put potentially poverty on top of that. And there's just so much that we don't know, that we don't have, that's not been addressed. Because you're like, where are those stories, you know?
0: total. I mean, it's also the race thing, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, I read things in the media about parenting related to things that a lot of us I mean, even privileged people, right? Yes, yes. Can't, like, like the, the the obsession with summer camp. <laughs> like, for example. Like, there
1: is a serious obsession with summer camp.
0: Yeah, yes. And I'm like, yes, there I, is. I enjoy reading it. Truly, actually, I do. I find it fascinating. But there are so many other stories about kids and growing up and caregiving that I think are really important for how we understand. And I think that is why the child-centered thing is also just like bringing eyeballs to more stories. That's why when I think it was like parents.com started one called Kindred for Black Families, mm, right? like, yeah. like the, for Black parenting, I'm struggling to find one for my identity Right. But I I think it, part of it is like we go to those spaces because we don't see ourselves anymore, anywhere. Right. And like mm-hmm. the teen health thing, Dr. Vivek Murthy, the doctor guy, the government <laughs> doctor guy, was talking about hustle culture as being a contributing factor to low mental health amongst teens. And I'm like, all of this needs to be interrogated in order for us to really see children of all races, of all income backgrounds, of everything. And like we're so... Not even a little bit close. In fact, we're moving further and further away. Well, the
1: one thing that I will say is that people have to learn how to fill their cup. Yeah, that's a good point. Because it's not ending, like you said. We're moving further and further away. So as a mom who had to take shifts, had to be a caregiver in a different way than you ever imagined. What are some of the things that you did when you were going through caregiver bias? You're tired, you're doing everything you can. What are some of the things that you did to just to fill your cup back up?
0: I don't think this is a very optimistic answer. I think you have to blow things up to fill your cup. Mm. I mean, I think that sometimes we go through really hard moments in life and we try to survive. Right. And like I had my survival co- tactics, and it was literally like get out of the hospital, walk 20 minutes with a coffee and music. Right. It was, I'm going to go eat ice cream, you know, something like that. Or like make sure Azali's in her hospital bed by a certain time because I needed to sleep too. Yeah. Yes. But I don't think, I don't think we can do it unless we're in a community of some sort. And, and I didn't even, That's a hard thing to say. Like, it's so easy to say be in community. But I think the stepping stone is, is wherever you are as a caregiver to try to share part of your story that you're willing to make visible to your friends. And I struggled with this. I had a lot of people show up and I had a lot of people not show up that I thought would show up. And I kind of took a pause and I was like, well, the thing is, I'm, and I think you're a this, I'm always a strong one. And I didn't realize, I didn't know that about myself. I didn't know that I was always the strong one. And so I've now started saying, hey, listen, I can't be there for you right now, but could you be there for me? And that's worked. It's amazing. (laughs) Because you have to let
1: people know, especially when they think that you are the strong one. First of all, you and I, you are my type of girl because you're like, you got to blow things up. I'm like, "Mm, (laughs) that's my girl right there. I'm like, blow it up, baby. Um, (laughs) I'm like, boom. (laughs) Exactly. You have to let people know. You have to share your story. And that's why I'm so glad that you came to us today to share your story with us, to share your effort, to share your faith, to share your work. And concluding as we're getting close to you know our time, I feel like Sleuth was your way of blowing it up, of providing the resources, providing the community. And so we want to invite people to get into these discussions. It just went live this week. Okay. If you got to remember that. So like I contributed a comment because I was like, I need to add this. I added a question, you know, it's not going to work unless we go on. You got to get the app, you know, um, can you tell us the website name?
0: Yes. Yeah. It's hellosleuth.com. And it's S L E U T H.
1: And if you go into the app store and you type in Sleuth, immediately it'll say like child care, health. You know, comes up next to it. Download the app. Start searching. If there's something that you're, I don't care if it's the common cold. If you're like, hey, this cough medicine didn't work, or my child is lactose intolerant, and I, you <laughs> yeah. know, mean go in contribute. And one of the things that. Attracted me to your story was that you know I told you that I am a person of prayer that I I start every morning with thirty minutes of deep prayer, and I have been a part of a Facebook community. So you mentioned a community. Someone who knows I'm a part of prayer tagged me into a community that was praying for a little girl named Taylor who was going through a medical emergency, and also. In that, her parents introduced us to a little boy, and that little boy, who was three years old, who I had been praying for, he did lose his battle this week. Oh, that's so and sad. so I want to dedicate this episode to the parents who are in the journey, for the parents who need faith, for the parents who need community, because we see you. We're sending out love and prayers to you. And there are people like Serene who are working hard at creating resources. So I want to just applaud you and thank you because this is an area that is not discussed enough and it deserves some light and shine. So I want to thank you for coming with us today.
0: Thank you for giving it light and shine, Stacey. You are more than welcome. I appreciate it so much. It means means a lot. It means a lot. So thank you. Well, you mean a lot. I'm like, I don't want to get teared. I'm like, I just can't imagine.